Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we take a look at the early period of Tom Waits with his focus on the beats and melancholy. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. the full scope of musical Americana, from ragtime, the Tim Pan Alley, gut bucket blues, the honky tonk, and so on, Tom Waits focuses more on the beat generation, the influence of the beat generation, and their jazz poetic stylings. Now keep in mind, of course, that we're talking about Tom Waits in the 1970s, the beginning of his, his career. By the 1970s, the beat generation is already out of date. It's already something of the past. So like Randy Newman, Tom Waits is a man out of his time, conscientiously so. He, he cultivates this image of, of a person from, from the not-so-distant past, out of step with the uh, late 60s counterculture. And Randy Newman did this as well, but whereas his approach was similar to a kind of um, short story writer who would bring in various characters and explore their their consciousness, Waits, at least in the early years, seems to embody a persona. Instead of, instead of narrating various points of view, he seems to embody a certain point of view, derived, as I said, from the beats. Now, when we're talking about the beats, of course, the beat generation, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, uh, William Burroughs, and so on, Greg Corso, we're talking about a group of poets and writers who felt alienated, disaffected. Uh, they, they avoided the stabilizing nature of, of American traditions. And therefore, their entire goal was to get out, to get out on the road, as, as Kerouac puts it. That there was a redemption in motion, that motion was salvation. And there was a belief that getting out of the suburban and hanging out in Skid Row and being close to uh, the, the, what they saw as the authenticity of life on that, that level of, of social alienation, of not finding one's way, of drunkenness, of, of escape, that that would bring them closer to something else they pursued, which was, of course, Buddhism uh, and, and Zen and Taoism. And this might seem like a strange mismatch at first. Because after all, the point of, of Buddhism, with its focus on the one, is to find some kind of stabilizing oneness, obviously. Right? Taoism is the great example of that. Those two religions or approaches to, to spirituality are, of course, distinct, and yet the beats don't always treat them as such. And so Taoism, with its concentration on perceiving the one through the thousand and one things, right? That you see that in the Tao Te Ching quite a bit, this, this idea that, that our life confronts us with a plurality of things that are deceptive in that what underlies them is one calm, stabilizing force. 
the Beats, in some ways, were more obsessed with the thousand and one things than they were with the one, although Kerouac writes plenty about, about the search for the one. But where are they searching for it? They're searching for it within what they seem to think is the more authentic, real life of the urban down and outer, as opposed to the comforts, the relative comforts, and the relative stability of suburban life. So the point of the Beats was to get out of the typical U.S. mindset, or what was viewed as the typical uh, hegemonic U.S. outlook, in order to get at something more real, more committed, even though it's a commitment to a kind of debauchery, a kind of losing of oneself, which you can start to see the resonance there with a kind of specific reading of Buddhism. This involved for the Beats a kind of melancholy, that their view of the world was a melancholy one, that the point of being on the road, the point of moving so quickly through the American landscape was to kind of blur the contours, to blur the edges, to get rid of a kind of distinctness of place, a distinctness of objects, in order to get at something underneath which felt more real, more authentic. That this blurring of the thousand and one things is what led to some kind of realization of the one. Now, melancholy is a classification that goes back to ancient Greece. It involves a persistent fear, low appetite, a lack of will, a listlessness, a sleeplessness, an irritability. But as far back at least as Aristotle, it was also classified as being uh, appropriate to artistic genius. That part of the, the way in which the artist produces is through this lack of appetite for things that other people uh, find appetizing for a lack of of will in the usual way of things. Of course, the artist has to have the will to produce, but it's outside of the usual modes of production, or at least that's what Aristotle posited. That what the melancholic does is he or she looks at the world in a certain way so that they revel in the shadows, they revel in the dark places, they revel in the things that are, not, that are usually chased away by the light in order to see other aspects of reality and bring that to the fore. During the Middle Ages, of course, melancholy was regarded as a sin, but a kind of necessary sin. St. Paul said that, that melancholy uh, could, could lead toward redemption because it caused one to ask for forgiveness. The Persian scholar from the Middle Ages, Al-Akalwani Bakari, describes melancholy as a self-laughing, a self-crying, and a speaking meaninglessly. Right? This idea of, of a certain amount of self-pity, but also mockery of one's self-pity. And so it's a deeply ambivalent position to be in. And it's one that I think the beats are after as well. That's one of the things that I think turns some people off about On the Road and Kerouac's writing in general, that he puffs himself up as a kind of uh, urban hero uh, who's, who's come in to poetically redeem the depredations of the lower class, of the, of the homeless, of the down and outers. And yet at the same time, there's this kind of pity for himself as this figure who's sacrificing his own intellectuality in order to chase after this underlying truth. And one of the things that the Beats revel in is this idea that art and life are not separate, 
But notice that the kind of life that they chase after is this, this life of drunkenness, of debauchery, of, of isolation, and of ex- exclusion from the uh, usual characterization of the American dream. And so melancholy and alienation seem to link up in a certain way. And indeed, one of the things that I think is important about this notion is that what melancholy does is it creates a special relationship to objects in the world. All objects for the melancholic in the extreme states, at least, of melancholia take on a kind of uh, bereavement. That, melancholy, uh, that, that objects for the melancholic are markers of the death of a certain way of life, a certain way of, of existing. They're the markers of the, of, uh, that divinity has left behind. This is something that you see in the works of, of Walter Benjamin, for instance. This idea that the melancholic sees objects in the world as a kind of epitaph for the illumination of the divine spirit that has now vacated our existence, that we're now left only with reminders of what could have been, of a, a, a more privileged access to meaning. And that what the melancholic sees are just the fragments, the shards of meaning that are left behind and tries to piece those together. And that this creates a certain amount of self-importance on the part of the melancholic, but also a certain amount of uh, desolation, of emptiness, of loneliness. And this, to me, is where we pick up with Tom Waits. So let's take two examples, one in this segment, one in the next, both from the album Small Change from 1976. In some ways, I would say this is his fourth album, and in some ways, I would say this is the culmination of his early period. The next few albums seem to me to be transitional, that they're moving into another aesthetic, and then by Swordfish Trombones, of course, he fully embraces a new direction to his career. And this was conscious, conscious, conscientiously done. 
uh, he felt that he was being pigeonholed in a way into this character of the of the stumble bum uh, that he had adopted his his version of of a combination of Kerouac and Charles Bukowski and we'll talk about Bukowski a bit in the last segment. Right now, let's stick with the the original beat generation and this idea that I presented at the end of the last segment about the melancholy of objects, the, the idea that objects become kind of shards, fragments of a former whole meaning, right? And I think this is conveyed rather well in the song that many critics considered the quintessential, at least early, Tom Waits song. And that's The Piano Has Been Drinking, Not Me, and Evening with Pete King. That's the full title. It's usually just called The Piano Has Been Drinking. In some ways, uh, well, let's go through it bit by bit, right? The title alludes to Pete King, who was the co-founder and director of Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club, where Waits had a residency, relatively short residency, from May 31st to June 12th, 1976, so right as he's working on this album, and he's writing this song uh, as a kind of exaggerated uh, version of, of what it was like to play at, the, um, at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. In some ways, the premise of the song is simple enough, right? Waits, in his full stumblebum slur, slurs and growls his, his way through the piece, uh, constantly swerving into discordant territory with both his voice and, and especially with the piano. The piano is basically one of the most straightforward chord progressions of all time. So musicians listening will recognize one, six, two, five, right? It's a, it's a very stable, very typical chord progression. You see it in a lot of jazz standards at the beginnings of, of the refrains of jazz standards. It's the, it's one of the main chord progressions for doo-wop. You hear it over and over again. But the way that he plays it when you listen to the album, which of course you should, he's constantly stumbling over the notes. At first it might sound like they're jazzy extensions, but it soon becomes clear that the player is, uh, is, is veering off the rails. It's not able to follow even this relatively simple, uh, actually very simple chord progression and very familiar chord progression. In a way, what he's doing here is he's working out a choreographed representation of a clumsy tripping over the piano keys, right? We're meant to understand that it's the singer who's drunk, of course, and, uh, but, but he, he projects that suffering, that, that despondency that he's, he's communicating, that despair, onto other people and onto inanimate objects, so it was the pianist drinking, right? Not the pianist. It was the piano drinking, not the pianist. It's a fun premise. It could easily become overly cute, right? But Waits keeps it from seeming merely silly, you know, being, being a one-off joke, by committing to it so, uh, so enthusiastically or so, so thoroughly. Uh, he mines the premise for insights into our melancholy condition. So the song begins, the piano has been drinking, my necktie is asleep, the combo went back to New York, and the jukebox has to take a leak. Right now, there are a couple of things here. Pianos obviously aren't drinking. It's the pianist who's drinking. Neckties don't go to sleep. But the combo probably did go back to New York. Right, the combo being his his band has abandoned him. So he's he's alone playing a solo gig at this place, uh, and and he's so out of sorts. He's so discomfited by it that even the jukebox seems to have to take a leak again. It's probably projection of things that that the um, narrator of the song is feeling. Right, the carpet needs a haircut, which is both a joke about shag carpeting of the seventies, 
but also feeling disheveled himself, probably. Uh, the spotlight looks like a prison break, right? He feels like he's, he's literally on the spot. The telephone's out of cigarettes and the balcony is on the make, right? So, so notice that, that the, in this, or at least in my vision of how this is all working, we have a f- protagonist here, a, a, uh, uh, a person who's clearly down on his luck, a musician, but, but at a sort of dead-end gig, who's looking around him and the entire room is teeming with symbols of discomfort, of despondency, of melancholy. The jukebox, the cigarette machine, the, the balcony, those all have functions within the space, right? They all do things. And, and we go to a nightclub to be entertained, to be catered to, to a certain extent, right? Um, having the, the cigarette machine there and having it full is part of the, the sort of comfort of being there. Having a bathroom at your disposal is part of the comfort of being there. And here, even the jukebox needs to take a leak, right? And, and the telephone's out of cigarettes, which of course never would have had cigarettes in the first place. But all of this displaced notion of meaning, that these, these objects which in the nightclub would normally have a kind of, of um, functionality and meaning and, and a sense of purpose are set in an environment of meaninglessness, of a kind of superabundance of absurdity. And that's perhaps the distinction w- between uh, weights and the beats, right? That that distance from the 1950s is now portrayed as an, almost a surrealist absurdity. So in some ways, the song uh, sounds like the kind of committed beat uh, vibe that, that he explored in earlier tracks. And yet in some ways, it's, a, a, it's hyperbole. It's a, it's a parody of that. He goes on then to invoke people um, along with objects, right? So the next um, stanza is the piano has been drinking and the menus are all freezing. The light man's blind in one eye and he can't see out of the other. And the piano tuner's got a hearing aid and showed up with his mother. So the the function of the lighting guy is that he sees well and that he helps other people to see well, right? But this uh, light guy is blind. The point of a piano tuner is that he can hear well and that he can get the the piano in in proper tuning so that it sounds good throughout the night but he's got a hearing aid and for whatever reason is dependent upon his mother it goes on from from there the bouncer is a sumo wrestler cream puff casper milk toast which is of course uh, a product that he's he's alluding to with the milk toast but he goes from the the bouncer being a sumo wrestler which sounds kind of effective for a a, a uh, bouncer but then he's also a cream puff right someone who can't stand up to uh, adversaries the owner who remember is in the title of the song or at least part owner Pete King is a mental midget with the IQ of a fence post, right? Again, uh, he's, he's lashing out at his environment. He's, he's uh, and in doing so, lashing out at himself. It goes on from there. We don't really need uh, the rest of it. The, the point should be clear here, that the, the song ends with the piano has been drinking, not me, not me, not me, the constant reassurance that it's not me. This, uh, and so, in a way, what I think that... that Waits accomplishes rather well in this song is both an embrace of the beat aesthetic while also kind of laughing at it. And since he's adopted it so thoroughly, 
he's fitting rather well with the definition of melancholy from from the the uh, Persian scholar that we talked about last time in the Middle Ages. That it's a self laughing along with a self crying, and a reduction of the world to a kind of meaninglessness. But not because the world is inherently meaningless but rather because meaning has vacated, meaning has left the building, meaning has left the, the surface of the earth along with divinity, along with God as the sanction of meaning. And so all the, the beat poet can do is cry a bit, but also laugh at his own crying. Let's turn to another song next. Okay, so let's take another song also from from Small Change. This one's Invitation to the Blues. And I think it introduces another aspect or maybe a deepening of an older aspect in Tom Waits, right? Like I said, Small Change is kind of the culmination of the early period because there's there's another there's another influence, literary influence at play. I mean, there are multiple others, but there's another one that we want to comment on, and that's Charles Bukowski. If Jack Kerouac was plagued by his alcohol demons, his alcoholic demons. And, and alcohol really diminished his capacity as a writer. That's one of the things that, that biographers often talk about and, and critics often talk about with, with Kerouac. And Kerouac has a very interesting relationship with alcohol, as we've, we've already discussed. He clearly thinks of it as a way of connecting with others, but he's also tortured by it. He, he realizes um, that, that he's suffering because of it. And so many of his novels have to do with attempts, at least, to go sober, to, to give up drinking. No such fate <laughs> awaits Charles Bukowski, right? Charles Bukowski, of course, is not part of the Beat Generation. He's a, he's a later writer. He's contemporary with um, Tom Waits. 
So he, like Tom Waits, is a bit out of time. He has he resonates in some ways with the Beat Generation, and yet he's distinctly different. And he's also distinctly L.A. Uh, in the same way that that early Tom Waits is distinctly L.A. He's he's very much embedded in the the culture of L.A. in the um, the sort of existential crisis of living in L.A. Or at least that's how how Bukowski sees it. And he he like Waits is interested not in in the Hollywood aspects of L.A., but rather the, the darker um, outskirts of L.A., the strip clubs, the little holes in the wall where you can find a drink and perhaps someone to talk to for the night. Uh, he's interested just like um, Tom Waits and, and to an extent like Kerouac uh, in, the, in the down and outers. But whereas Kerouac sees himself as uh, in some ways, redeeming, and this is my opinion, of course, but in some ways he sees himself as redeeming the down and outers, that he's, he's grasping that authenticity, that, that the grit of human existence in order to bring something else out of it, the one, the, the Taoist one, right? This, this idea of a spiritual unity. Bukowski sees a kind of spirituality in debauchery itself, that it's not a means, it's an end in a way. And I think Invitation to the Blues from Small Change by, by Tom Waits gloms on to some of that, that Bukowski influence. The chord progression itself is already, I think, quite fascinating, right? Uh, we won't go into a great deal of detail, but basically the tune starts like... So notice that we have this shift from the D minor right to a B flat minor. And then that continues the descent. And then this to the G minor and then to the five. And we're back. So if I do just the, the first part of the song uh, uh, for, for analysis purposes, right? We have... Uh, well, she's up against the register With an apron and a spatula With yesterday's deliveries And a ticket for the bachelor She's a moving violation From a conk down to her shoes And it's just an invitation to the blues all right, so there are a couple of things going on there, right? Clearly, this is scene setting, right? He's describing a kind of femme fatale. There's, there are certain ways in which this is, is um, redolent of film noir, right? And so we have the femme fatale, although she's a sort of special kind of femme fatale, as we'll see, right? She's a down-to-earth femme fatale in some ways. Uh, she's up against the register, right? So the way she's leaning against the register, she's got a, the spatula in the apron, so we know she's she's serving food, right? Uh, she's got yesterday's deliveries and tickets for the bachelors that are there at the at the um, lunch counter. Uh, but then the metaphors begin. She's a moving violation, 
right? That the way that she moves is so seductive that it ought to be illegal, I suppose. From her conch, an, an old way of talking about a hairdo, right? Again, trying to seem out of date, her conch down to her shoes. But everything about her is an invitation to the blues. He recognizes that, that pursuing her is not going to lead him to happiness. And yet that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do exactly, right? And notice how the that progression with its its slow descent in the bass and its um, its various chromaticisms, the D minor going right to a B flat so that the um, the tonic pitch D becomes a D flat in the very next chord. The B flat minor chord has B flat, D flat, F, right? Again, we don't need to get too technical, but you, you can see that the whole song is about this sort of darkening descent, the, the way the harmonies work. So we're describing, or he's describing this this woman, he goes on, right, and to describe how he feels in relation to her. You feel just like Cagney. He, he puts you in it, really. He, so you are a substitute for, for him, right? You, and you feel just like Cagney, and she looks like Rita Hayworth at the counter of the Schwab's drugstore. That's a little bit of, of L.A. Uh, lingo there. Schwab's drugstore was supposedly where Lana Turner was discovered, right? She was working as a waitress there. Here it's Rita Hayworth instead of Lana Turner, but uh, the idea is that Schwab's was a place that, while it's a drugstore, um, hopefuls, people who wanted to break into the business of, of acting or modeling, would be there, right? And so it's, it's even described in the uh, Billy Wilder film, the fantastic film Sunset Boulevard, uh, and the narrator of that um, that film describes it as a place where people wait to get on the gravy train, right? They're waiting to be discovered, to, to be picked up. People treated it almost like an office. And the, the lyrics continue. You wonder if she might be single. She's alone, like it's a mingle. You got to be patient and pick up a clue. Um, but then she's asking him about how he likes his eggs. He tries to say something witty back, right? Uh, got to be, And then he says, you got to be careful not to gamble on a guy with a suitcase and a ticket getting out of here and a tire bus station and an old pair of shoes, but it ain't nothing but an invitation to the blues. Notice how he's, he's characterizing himself, this character that he's playing, that he's invited us to identify with. You feel just like Cagney. Uh, and so this guy with a suitcase and a ticket getting out of here, he has the means of escape, right? And we're supposed to, again, this is a lot like Bukowski. We're supposed to identify with this guy that's down and out, that we've all felt this way at some point. And, and he romanticizes it in a way, but not as a means to something else. He romanticizes it as a condition of being, that part of the way that we exist is in this, this m contradictory moment of being able to, to escape, to be given to flight, and yet lingering in a place that we know is perhaps not the best for us, right? And the song goes on. We don't need to go through the, um, the whole, uh, every lyric, but it goes on to describe her as being jilted. Now, he doesn't know. He hasn't talked to her in the song, right? But he's imagining her condition in ways that are um, resonant with stories that are told about Schwab's drugstore, right? So he says she's had a sugar daddy uh, and a candy apple caddy. Uh, he had bought her a car, a Cadillac, right? And a bank account and everything. So she was accustomed to the finer things, but he probably left her for a socialite. Right. And he didn't love her except at night. He was only using her for sex. So now she's jilted and she's looking for somewhere to be. 
And the song ends again with a reference to the possibility of flight. There's a continental trailways leaving local bus tonight. Good evening. You can have my seat. I'm sticking around here for a while. So he gives away his bus ticket. He gives away his opportunity for escape. Right? He's going to stick around for a while, get his get a room in a local hotel, maybe work at the uh, at the filling station. He'll eat there every night because what the hell does he have to lose? Is what he says. Right? Maybe, maybe he'll muster up the courage to talk to her. But uh, but notice how the song ends. Uh, got a crazy sensation. Go or stay. I've got to choose, and I'll accept your invitation to the blues. So. Here, what he's suggesting, obviously, is that by sticking around, by trying to develop some kind of relationship with her, all it's leading to is misery. All it's leading to is the blues, and yet he wants it anyway. That part of the meaningfulness of our connections to others is our, our willingness to suffer misery. Usually we use the word commiserate to mean that we identify with somebody in their misery, but we might think of commiseration in a more literal sense as being the key to the song, that what we're really looking for is a place to be miserable with someone else, and that there's meaning in that misery, but maybe not hope. Hope. 